The world as we know it continues to evolve and change into something that we can only hope to understand. This is why the registry continues to provide industry insights through personal interviews with the leaders who are shaping real estate on a daily basis. By subscribing to our podcast, you are helping us in our work, and we will continue to deliver programming such as the one you're about to hear. Please click the subscribe button and let your friends and colleagues know about us. It will help you and the industry stay ahead of the game. We sit down today with Mark Whiting, the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of San Francisco-based Drawbridge Realty. Drawbridge is a real estate investment and development company that targets commercial property investments in growth markets across the U.S., Its portfolio primarily consists of office properties leased long-term to large corporations with an emphasis on strategically important locations. Mark Whiting and Mark Pearson formed Drawbridge Partners in 1999. In 2011, Drawbridge Partners recapitalized the company with a major institutional investor, Almanac Realty Investors, and changed the name of the company to Drawbridge Realty Trust. During the next three years, Drawbridge tripled the size of its portfolio and generated steady growth in profitability and valuation. In December of 2014, Drawbridge formed a partnership with international asset management firm Colbert Kravis Roberts, KKR, which made a significant investment in a company to substantially grow the platform. Welcome to the Podmark. Mark, good morning. How are you? Uh, well, thank you. Good morning. How are things? Uh, where do we find you this morning? I'm actually in my office. I've been in, uh, working more and more in our office. We're headquartered in uh, Embarcadero Center and okay. our company's, company's headquarters in San Francisco. So uh, I actually find myself much more productive down here than I do uh, being bombarded by uh, my family members at home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I think in that sense, you are fortunate. <laughs> a lot of people don't have that luxury. I have a place to go, yeah. yes. But yeah. but your company also is not th- that big people-wise, so I guess return to work for you guys was probably a little easier than most companies, Yeah. Right? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, but I, we're we're at this juncture. We're giving everybody the option to to you know to come into the office if that if it's a helpful, more productive space for them. And you know, we do have uh, certain tenants that still insist on uh, sending us rent checks, so we got to come in and do our banking <laughs> regularly. Right. And right, right, and this is part of the drill. But we're uh, we're keeping things rolling. And I'd say that probably a handful of us come in out of around twenty folks. And okay. you know. Uh, that uh, allows us to be adequately productive from home, but um, I think people are anxious to get back to work when yeah. uh, when they when when we can. I think people miss the camaraderie. Yeah, understood. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. Um, so, Mark, thanks for taking the time to chat with sure. us today. Um, I would love for you to tell us a, a little bit about your company as a sort of way of introduction and kind of your background. You know yes. how how you got to where you are and sort of your your sphere of influence yeah. at the organization, if you will. Yeah, sure. Well, it's probably germane just to talk, touch a little bit on uh, uh, my background. I, I went to Stanford undergrad, and then I, I worked overseas uh, in Australia for a couple of years, and then I went back to business school. And my first career stop was as a financial analyst for one of the large Hawaiian uh, companies. And uh, I worked. I ended up starting as a financial analyst, and I ended up becoming one of the management people in their real estate business. And it was a my first shot at seeing uh, from the corporate side, you know, how, how they were managing a fairly vast real estate portfolio and 
a number of the Hawaiian companies at the time that were publicly traded were, as this one was, were uh, uh, involved in both uh, commercial property, residential property, yeah. uh, as well as some uh, some resort properties. So that was a great experience. The company was called Alexander Baldwin, um, and and uh, and then I, while I was living living in Hawaii, I got to know a, a fellow by the name of Jay Scheidler, who's who's a, a very well known. A commercial property investor, yes, very, yeah. very much like a Sam Zell type of investor, yeah, we, oppor- we, opportunistic. Uh-huh. Yeah, we we actually know him. I I, I don't know him personally, okay. but we as as you know, we we covered a Seattle market, and he's uh, very yes. active here and has kind of a unique offering with his he does. Uh, a- acquisitions, mm-hmm. and he, you know, splits up the land with the buildings right. and kind of right. does does that. So yeah, so as a as a young fella uh, working and living in Hawaii, I actually uh, had the chance to meet Jay. And at the time, he had uh, he was very active in the commercial property business and had fourteen offices around the company, and and really had modeled his business. While he wasn't a developer per se, he'd built his business model like Trammell Crow, where he had okay. regional partners that were focused on regional markets, and and guys uh, you know operating within that spectrum would help source deals, and he'd use his balance sheet with you know, very smart local partners that would co-invest with him. And so I joined him in uh, 1987 after five years in Hawaii to uh, just form what was called the corporate-owned real estate group within the Scheidler group. So we were, what what Scheidler had found, and I'd actually been on the other side of this working at Alexander and Baldwin, is that uh, corporations that have operating real estate behave in a certain manner where Oftentimes, it creates opportunities for investors to work with those companies to, you know, to create value both for the the corporations that they work with as well as from an investor standpoint. Yeah. Uh, so, so we formed the corporate owned real estate group in 1987. I moved back to San Francisco, and I was one of three founders of that business. And and really, the simple mandate was to work around the country with uh, the various regional offices to help harvest corporate opportunities that were, you know, were perhaps multi-market opportunities. And so where a corporation, uh, you know, uh, might be headquartered in a, in Chicago, for example, and had, you know, operating real estate that maybe it wanted to sell and lease back, or it was expanding, or it had surplus assets that it wanted to sell or what have you. So we, we formed that business and, uh, I spent, uh, ended up becoming the CEO of that business and spent six years running it privately. And we gravitated towards, Acquiring assets that were predominantly office and industrial assets leased to large corporate users. And we really started uh, working with below investment grade credits because at that time there was lots of capital and there still is chasing the longer duration leases and the, you know, the higher quality credits. And we just decided, you know, we were going to take a very real estate centric uh, ground up focus on markets that we liked and commercial property that we would like to own, regardless of whether it was occupied by that particular tenant or not, and try to operate in the below investment grade uh, realm uh, with you know high startup companies and uh, you know, companies that were you know had been uh, part of a leverage buyout or what yeah. have you. So we, you know, we formulated a business that uh, uh, we ended up taking public as a real estate investment trust in 1993, and the company was called Trinet. Corporate Realty Trust, traded on the New York Stock Exchange, and um, really what we what we were, we were taken public by Merrill Lynch, and uh, we were part of the the new wave of REITs. You know, there's since been billions of dollars of REIT formation yeah. since since then, uh, but we were one of the early uh, early ones that came out, and uh, 
Really, uh, it was an opportunity to, you know, uh, at the time in uh, the early 90s, a number of the banks were facing difficulties. And, you know, what happened was a number of companies like ours effectively deleveraged through the, fo- the public format and formulated the REIT structure. And our particular niche was to buy assets that were leased to corporate tenants that, you know, that as a style group was an income-oriented product that Merrill Lynch took public for us and was a fairly defensive product. And so we were acquiring, you know, we, and we, we evolved from the private format to the public format to start moving up the credit spectrum where we could do, you know, all types of credits, the, the lesser and, you know, below investment grade credits as well as the higher quality credits sure, because our, sure. cost of, our cost of capital went down as, as we went public. And, you know, we grew the business from, a, we went public as a $200 million portfolio, which you couldn't do today, but we did back then. And we, we grew and diversified the business over the next six years to a billion and a half dollar company, and and uh, you know we 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 became a national investor, and we uh, we had all, you know five offices, and you know invested uh, very successfully around the company and yeah, country yeah. rather, and we were a we were a top quartile performer in the REIT space, and then in um, right around ninety seven ninety eight the the it was it was really a precursor to what happened in 2007-2008. There was a Russian currency crisis and the long-term capital management crisis. And yep, uh, yep. the REIT markets traded uh, way off. And I was approached by Fortress to uh, to think about uh, uh, privatizing the business as a manage- management-led privatization. So uh, I went to my board and, uh, you know, we, we – uh, worked with Fortress to privatize the business, and then uh, at the eleventh hour, the bank that I won't mention that had committed the capital to to do the privatization actually on for Fortress uh, and and the management team uh, bailed out okay. of its commitment. And uh, I was the public company CEO at the time. And when you're a public company CEO that uh, is working on a privatization and it's not successful. Uh, you don't really get a mulligan and say, well, I was just pretending, <laughs> right. you know, and I, I get to, right. uh, I, right. I'm, I'm happy being public. So right. I, uh, you know, for what, unfortunately for me and my management team and, uh, and my board that we're all good friends of mine, I, uh, I respectfully resigned and, and rode off into the sunset and, uh, Subsequently, Trinet was sold to a Starwood Enterprise, and, and the real estate assets ended up becoming part of what is now iStar Financial. Got it. Yep. Yep. And uh, uh, it was a very successful run for you know for me. It was a life changing experience being a public company CEO, and and we invested very successfully for our investors, and our investors were happy. And so, the good news is I left reputationally with a very good reputation among the investor universe and uh there was still plenty of uh opportunity out there in the real estate sector for pursuing you know similar types of opportunities and so i took about 18 months off with my family and uh uh, and then in 2000 i was approached by a fellow that we had worked with at the reit uh who's become a very dear friend of mine a fellow by the name of mark pearson who's a uh a very well-known uh, West Coast corporate tenant rep broker, okay. and and Mark, you know, approached me and said, "Listen, um, I know a number of corporations that you know that are out there looking for different types of uh, assets and different types of real estate, and to the extent that 
you can help find us those opportunities that you know that 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 we could invest in. I, I will disclose to my corporate relationships that I'm a passive investor in your and your fund, and and let's go see if we can marry you know my corporate you know, tenant demand with you know uh, your investment acumen to find assets that make sense. Yeah. And so. Uh, we started uh, Drawbridge Partners in 2000, and my uh, this is Mark Pearson, and he at the time he was a, a principal in what is now called Cressa Partners. Okay, and yeah. uh, and then Cressa ended up being acquired by uh, by Savills yep. uh, later, and and so that that's still an active organization in which Mark uh, is is a, a participant, and um, and we set forth to. to to form Drawbridge. And really what we did within Drawbridge was really take the best of what we'd learned in the public company format and, uh, and broaden that. And so, uh, what we found in the public company, we were just acquiring fully leased assets that were leased, uh, for five years or longer. And, and generally to, you know, as we, as we became public, you know, to pretty high quality credits. And, um, and what we did at uh, when we started Drawbridge is is really uh, include that as part of what we would invest in, yeah, yeah. and also broaden the spectrum to the to the you know the the higher risk return portion of those types of assets where we could uh, either acquire an empty building or acquire a building subject to a short lease that may be soon to be vacated, acquire a building subject to a short lease that was mispriced because of the binary risk of a tenant potentially moving out. Sure. And so, so, so it sounds like uh, value add type of opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So we really merged the, 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 you know, the larger corporate relationship business with, with uh, taking on the full spectrum of what might be possible yeah. with these corporate relationships. And so, uh, so we began that in uh, 2000 really as a part-time business for both of us. And we, just started acquiring an asset or two a year where, you know, predominantly Silicon Valley barrier based assets uh, where we were often acquiring from either corporate, you know, sellers yeah. or acquiring an asset that could be leased to a corporate tenant. And, and really the strategy, which is consistent with what it is today is uh, to acquire assets that will ultimately be fully leased by a tenant or two where we, our view is that the, you know, the duration of that tenancy will be longer duration and right, therefore right. An, in, an income you know a steady income generate right, right and so so that was really uh you know we would we would acquire assets beginning in 2000 and separate llcs with high net worth co-investors and uh smaller funds we were generally doing investments that were probably you know five million to 50 million in size okay. and you know, we did that very successfully. Again, it was predominantly just Bay Area investing. Yeah. And uh, but you've and expanded we pretty, since, right? Yeah, we were pretty active from you know 2000 to 2006 or seven, and then the market became a bit frothy, and we were fortunately the bridesmaid on a number of of deals. And then uh, you know the 0708 crisis happened, and you know uh, our portfolio during that you know the ensuing two or three years performed very well, you know, we, and we had sold a few assets that we had leased, uh, off to some REITs like car America that later became yeah. part, I think of equity office and, you know, others that, uh, that Alexandria and others and, and, um, and biomed realty and, and, and the assets that we held, uh, performed very well, 
we had an asset leased to Google and and Shoreline. We had an asset uh, leased to Wilson Sonsini on Page Mill Road in Palo Alto. And, yep. You know, these assets uh, performed extremely well. Uh, we had an asset leased to a defense contractor called L3 Harris in Salt Lake City. And, you know, the, the rent kept coming in. And, and uh, these were all single asset investments that were separately owned and separately financed. And, um, and they were just cash flowing extremely well. And as we emerged from the the downturn, we decided to roll those assets up in a uh, into a single company, and to to have a larger. We were approached by some bankers about uh, having a larger recapitalization of the business. And then, uh, at the end of 2011, we we formed. Uh, we went from Drawbridge Partners, which was an amalgamation of separate assets, to uh, form what was called uh, Drawbridge Realty Trust. Let's see, uh, yeah, Drawbridge Realty Trust, and. We rolled in a couple hundred million of assets and uh, an institutional investor called Almanac Realty uh, out of New York uh, came in and invested a, a chunk. They provided us with a commitment of, of $150 million yeah, yeah. to effectively go out and expand the business. Yeah. Uh, Almanac Realty, which when, when we began to negotiate with them, they were called Rothschild Realty and, and they were affiliated with Rothschild out of France. And then. Yeah. The New York-based team ended up acquiring when the during the downturn bought out the the French investor and became Almanac Realty, and they they've been very successful investing in and their strategies to invest in uh, entities and help them uh, recapitalize and grow. Makes sense. So Makes sense. Uh, and they did that very well, and and they helped us grow from uh, what was a couple hundred million to six hundred million in assets, and then uh, their commitment ran out they they didn't have more capital they could provide us and we almanac and the drawbridge management team hired east hill to go out and and uh, uh and represent us to find new capital to continue to grow yeah. uh, and that would have been in uh uh 2000 um let's see uh when was that that was 2014 uh beginning of 14 and um and we had 14 uh, firms, uh, you know, they were interested in us. So you would know all of them. And, uh, we ended up, uh, recapitalizing f- with growth capital from KKR. Yep. And so that was at the end of 2014 and KKR, uh, I ended up buying out Almanac. And then we really structured the business at that juncture as a, uh, and we were about a $600 million company then as an open-ended investment management fund. And yeah, so yeah. Uh, KKR came in and we co-own the general partner and uh, they bas- basically provided us with growth capital and we set the business up as an income-oriented, open-ended fund. And, and so uh, so at, at that juncture, we, you know, we, we joined forces with them. They've, been a, they've since been a great partner. They're still our partners. And now we're up to about a billion and a half in assets. And uh, uh, we have 50 properties today in uh, 11 different markets, yep, um, yep. and uh, it's a similar strategy. You know, we're, we're our assets are leased uh, longer term to uh, predominantly investment grade tenants. Um, yeah, and and if I can just sort of you know ask you a couple of questions there. So so you 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 do have kind of a national strategy, and yes, it looks like uh-huh. based on you know at least from the images on on your website, Mark, most of these assets are you know two three stories. So this is a suburban office product, right? I mean, yes, so you uh, we have specifically one CBD. focused there, right? Yeah, I mean we um, you know what we've done, uh, and I think 
just circling back to Mark Pearson's presence, is we've really tried to work with the corporations that are existing tenants and the corporate tenant rep world to just understand where the demand is for space sure. in the corporate world. And what that really led us to is to invest in the markets where these companies are planting a flag and uh, and broaden, you know, and, you know, so today we're in uh, the Bay Area, we're in Orange County, San Diego County, Phoenix, Salt Lake, Denver, Austin, Atlanta, Raleigh, Durham, and Washington, D.C., um, the only uh, CBD asset that we own is uh, we own one asset in CBD. That's the headquarters of uh, CoStar. You're, you're familiar with CoStar. Yes, in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the rest are suburban uh, uh, buildings. And, you know, interestingly, when we started our venture with KKR and throughout our history, you know, the demand that we've seen and the assets that we've acquired, and now we're generally acquiring kind of 30 million to. 150 million, you know, chunks of assets, but they, they tend to generally be suburban locations. And, and it's really because these corporations want to diversify their real estate footprint. And most of our assets tend to be uh, kind of research oriented facilities, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, where there's collaborative, uh, you know, collaboration going on. And, you know, they're mostly office buildings. We have a little, little industrial, but generally office and, um, you know, they tend to be uh, located in suburban, you know, what I would call very robust suburban markets. So, you know, when you hear suburban markets, sometimes you think, you know, that might be a remote location somewhere and, they, and that could be. But we're really uh, in markets and we learned this from the Trinet days where, you know, we're buying very good buildings that are multi-tenantable buildings in great locations so that if something should happen, you know, we all remember companies like Arthur Anderson and, sure. you know, uh, sure. <laughs> you go on and on with the list of companies that you thought would be around forever that aren't. Right. right. And uh, right. Yeah. so you really have to. You know, and I think this is where we're a differentiator. We, you know, there are investors in the quote unquote net lease space. You know, we really think of ourselves as a commercial, you know, commercial property investor with investing in markets that we like uh, with tenants that we think are going to be long duration tenants. It happens that. We derive the benefits of the triple net lease structure uh, generally, but uh, unlike others in the net lease space, you know, we really uh, will stay away from either locational characteristics or building design characteristics that cause us to, to worry about the what ifs if the tenant yeah. should move out of the yeah. building. Makes sense. And so we, you know. So that's really what's led us to where we are today. Yeah. So you you sit in San Francisco, right? You you yes. this is where your headquarters are. Undoubtedly, yes. over the last decade, you've watched kind of this migration into, you know, this you know tech talent into the cities, um, and you seem to be positioned really well, kind of given where the world is now with the pandemic. Well, uh, yeah. You know, tell us a little bit about that and sort of how you know that was going through your mind as as all these companies were you know leasing up space and central business yes. districts and now you know we're in a situation you know essentially where they kind of want to go back right they they want this lower yes. wider type you know product right well they were they were always there there was you know there's the the bright light on the you know, particularly here in the bay area and in seattle with you know the the boom in the downtown markets and i do i do think that the it, it's interesting to note uh that the you know, if you think about the demographic of the of the employee base, you know what the companies are trying to do that are growing fast is just hire the best talent, yeah. right? 
And usually those are folks that are right out of, out of the best universities. And where do you want to live when you come out of, out of a, you know, out of college? You want to live in a, in a, in a place where you can have fun yeah, while you're working, yeah. right? And so I think that's, you know, while, uh, Apple and Facebook and Google continue to be headquartered in, you know, Cupertino and Menlo Park and Mountain View, um, you know, they saw as as a competitive driver. They want they needed to be in these in these more urban locations. And you know, initially they were busing folks down to their locations, and they still are. But then ultimately, they you know they started planting flags right in the CBD locations to right. be competitive, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And so you know, I think uh, while we've been fundraising, uh, you know, to grow and expand our business. You know, I, I would be candid. There was, you know, there was some initial resistance to the suburban focus because uh, there was just so much news about the the, the the explosion in the CBD markets. And our view was, listen, over over my uh, thirty years of investing, it really has been both. You know, it has been the ebb and flow of really the. If you think about an employee, you know, the 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 life cycle of an employee. Well, they they start out often being uh, single, and they ultimately end up forming families. And yeah. where, what do they want to do when they form families? Well, they want to go live and work in places where they can afford to live and raise families and go to schools. And you know, those tend to be suburban locations, yeah. right? And yeah. so that diversification. It continues to be important to all of the major companies as they grow, and, and that never really changed. I think it changed as it relates to the, you know, the the focus on the office product generally. I think the institutional investor market uh, market's uh, demand was more, you know, let's be in those CBD, those you know, those trophy uh, CBD locations, and sure. you know, that's that's actually a, an appropriate allocation of capital for anyone but they they have particular characteristics that are unique and yep. Yep. for us uh we've just wanted to you know ultimately what we wanted to do is buy assets that we felt would be uh recession proof and you know we've been through a few cycles that have have shown us that these types of assets tend to really perform well uh in downturns just yep. because of yep. the quality of the tenants and the duration of the lease and they're not such big chunks of commitments you know or you know, our buildings are sort of 150, you know, 100, 150, you know, thousand square feet on up. But they're typically, as you said, two, three-story suburban locations. They, they're they adequately, you know, they have lots of parking. They have public transportation. They have, you know, they offer everything. And they offer, you know, they offer ease of access, you know, around the building so people can get out of the building easily. And it just so happens that that's a very, you know, COVID-friendly footprint yeah exactly Um, Exactly. right i mean you know it just it it, it's it's played into our strength but i you know we were doing that before so right right you know i just think it's where you know uh, and and by the way you know we're very humbled by you know and uh, you know everyone's struggling and you know the longer this pandemic goes on you know we worry about all of our tenants and their ability to keep their businesses afloat but you know, so far uh, throughout the pand- pandemic, you know, we've been, uh, however many, what, you, you, your starting date for the pandemic is a little different depending on yeah. who you are. But, you know, we're kind of, what, eight or nine months into it. And uh, for the first uh, seven or eight months, we were getting 98% of our rent. We had one tenant that was struggling. It was a private LBO credit. And then um, about uh, two months ago, we 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 uh, allowed that tenant to terminate their lease. They gave us a big 
payment to do so. Yeah. And uh, a, a tenant next door ended up uh, taking all of their space. So now we're now we're at a hundred percent. And so. Yeah. You know, uh, for us, uh, and again, we're not at all uh, arrogant or cavalier about this, but we, you know, it's it's really been consistent with our strategy. We've been through a couple of these, uh, you know, uh, you know, rainstorms, uh, squalls before, and our, you know, as I mentioned in in oh uh, eight, oh seven, oh eight, oh nine, our tenants paid the rent, yeah, and yep. you know, steady, steady as she goes, and so that's. So within this structure, we're trying to be, you know, uh, a steady income grower, and uh, you know, we really run it like a private REIT. It's a it's a partnership, but we really run it like a private REIT, and we, you know, we have investors that like the quarterly distributions yeah. and the growth in our dividends, and you know, very akin to a public company uh, strategy in a private format. Yeah, makes sense. So you mentioned you've been through a couple of these. This is not your first rodeo in a, in a, in a, in a sense, right? Yeah. What, yeah. what have been some surprises, both maybe positive and negative, that you know were not anticipated? Well, you know, uh, obviously this has been a unique uh, circumstance, and I think that, um, you know, we've all... Uh, benefited from the technology that's now available that's you know that's allowed companies to continue to perform i think it's been hugely important i think that the the numbers show that uh companies have been able to stay afloat uh and stay productive while working from home and i think that that's that's an element of of our uh society that was already existent before i think it's you know it's, it's skyrocketed uh out of necessity since yeah. but um you know and, and i think uh I, I think that that the fact that folks have been able to stay as productive as they have in the face of of having to shelter in place i think has been uh a, you know a, a a nice surprise um you know i think that the the implications to different real estate product have been uh, intense. Um, more, some, you know, some sectors more than others, obviously. And you know, we've watched our tenants actually uh, adapt pretty effectively. And you know, it's been interesting to note how the occupancy levels have varied by market because yeah. of how different markets have responded to the pandemic, right? And you know, we're more fully operational in places like. Texas and Raleigh Durham than we are in our Bay Area locations just because of the you know the man the local mandates and so and and the mindset of those regional populations and so um, you know listen I think that this this has reminded us that diversification is good it's reminded us that having you know longer duration you know uh, leases has is helpful <laughs> to to great companies you know in the face of something like this and you know, I, I'm sure that many multi-tenant building owners with shorter duration leases uh, are experiencing problems with their yeah. tenants because they either yeah. don't have the financial wherewithal to write it out, or their leases are coming up now. And guess what? Those rents are maybe not what they were, or maybe the tenants have just decided not to renew because they decided they could work from home more effectively. So, um, you know, I think that that the combination of the the nature of this downturn because it's not it's not just purely economic and it's not really you know a lot of the downturns in our industry before have been kind of supply and demand driven right or kind of capital markets driven or both but this one is unique in that 
you know, it really caused people to not be able to go to the office because of, you know, and to varying degrees because of uh, the danger associated yeah, with that. And I think, yeah. right. And I think corporations have had to, uh, corporations are still very, uh, very concerned about the liability of reopening. Right. And so they're going to err on the side of uh, reopening more carefully and more slowly just because they don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want to put anyone at risk unnecessarily yeah, if they yeah, don't have to. Yeah. So, uh, and, 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 you know, to, to finish the point, I, I think that it's created a lot of awareness and a lot of press about, you know, about the, the, you know, the necessity of office space in general and what is it going to do to the office sector in general. And I think that that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a viable concern. And I do think that for some types of office product that are, you know, that are different than what we do particularly, I think that that's, that's a concern. And I think, you know, I think that, uh, it so happens that we're investing in assets where there's, you know, that collaborative research element of the use of the facility is is critical, um, you know. But I think that'll be different sir, for for office uses that are more back office uses, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, again, we're fortunate. You know, we've just been trying to look at the touchstones for investing that create longer term and longer duration occupancy, and over our you know, since the in the twenty years that we've been uh, in the drawbridge format, you know, we found that our tenants renew the leases over ninety percent of the time when they roll. Yeah, that's and great. so that's yeah, and that's just a hallmark of how we're investing and how we're underwriting. I mean, they're good companies, and you know, the, the, we look at the uses of the facilities and why they chose to locate there, and you know, what what we think has duration and sustainability in terms of those choices. Sure. Mark, uh, during times of challenge, uh, uh, one would say that's also a time of opportunity. As you kind of look into, you know, the next cycle and the next decade, you know, is this a time for you to consider uh, maybe markets where you haven't been active yet? Is this a time to consider maybe some product types that you haven't you know, had in your portfolio yet? Tell us a little. Tell us a little bit about kind of how you're 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 preparing to you know you know create opportunity out of out of this um, circumstance where we are today. Yes. Well, we 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 think this is a great time to be active. Um, you you have to be more careful about about opportunities that require leasing in the next couple of years versus yes. something that might be longer dated, <laughs> right, right? Because right. I do think there. Are, is an impact on demand that that's COVID related, you know, COVID, uh, you know, impacted, induced or or whatever that, that I think that, uh, is very real and, and will be lasting. And, uh, and that may take a year or two or three to kind of work its way through the system. But I think that, you know, I think the, you know, I, I was on a, on a Stanford, uh, call with Sam Zell spoke earlier this week and he's, he said, you know, he, he, he's leaning into the opportunity to buy office and CBD locations because he said these are, these cities will rebound. And similarly for us, while we're not a CBD uh, investor per se generally, um, we do think that there are headwinds related to the office category that will impact uh, both how investors allocate money to the space and how lenders lend money to the space, which for us – 
creates, uh, you know, it creates opportunity. It creates risk returns that we think, uh, you know, where the perception may not match up with the reality, uh, particularly in our space. And so, you know, we will take advantage of trying to get into the target markets that we're not in today, you know, Boston, Seattle, Portland. And I think we will expand our footprint in markets in which we are operating. You know, we have a we have a new building going up in Austin right now. And when we, you know, we pull the trigger uh, on expanding uh, this campus uh, with no tenant uh, in tow uh, in Austin, just because of our long-term beliefs in the fundamentals of Austin. And, yeah, um, yeah. and it's a hundred and, you know, 25,000 square foot, three-story building and, and a great location. And, you know, it'll be completed uh, early next year. And we're feeling very good about that. Yeah. Um and we have, uh, you know, we're 90, just under 95% occupied today. And what we've noted uh, is, that, is that today we're actually uh, seeing inquiries on our vacant space from corporate users that, that are taking advantage of this time to, to make some deals and, and to find some opportunities. So, you know, these, uh, these larger corporations that, uh, that are out there continuing to grow, most mostly life science and technology uh, driven businesses, which is where we've spent most of our time investing in the last couple of decades, are still out there looking to to plant a flag. And um, you know, we we think that 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 the the near term concern about office will create, uh, in our view, some mispricing that allows us to be continue to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark, as you canvas sort of the industry and everything else going on in this world today, what gives you hope? Well, listen, uh, what gives me hope is that we have an incredibly innovative uh, and resourceful uh, country. And, uh, you know, obviously the good news about the, you know, we've never had uh, to be able to do the DNA and RNA sequencing on a virus like this before to the extent that we have because of of biotechnology, right? And the ability to match computers with science. And, you know, so the growth in that sector, which is a sector that Mark Pearson, my partner, has been focused on for decades, uh, is exploding. And, you know, we're excited about that because, you know, it's saving people's lives. And that's a sector in which we have familiarity. And and, and so, uh, you know, the, res- the resourcefulness and innovativeness about our society is one of its great strengths and so you know i'm inspired i mean it's certainly it's we're going to go through a rough winter all of us um but i'm very inspired by what i see and you know we'll come out of the back end of this and you know we just got to help each other through it while we're going through it mark thank you very much for your time i enjoyed our conversation stay safe Uh, likewise same to you same to you talk to you soon 